Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today we are lucky to be joined by Yoas Vachemakers, who's an Associate Professor of Islamic and Arabic Studies in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Utrecht. He specializes in Salafism, modern Islamic thought, Islamism, and theology. In addition to numerous articles, he is the author of several books, including Aqaida Shihadi, The Ideology and Influence of Abu Muhammad al-Maktasi, Salafism in Jordan, Political Islam and Aqaidist Community, and his latest book, The Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, is forthcoming with Cambridge University Press and should be published late this year or early next year. Yoas, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, Yoas, you've written extensively on Islamism in Jordan, uh, including the article we'll be talking about today, which is titled Between Exclusivism and Inclusivism, the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood's Divided Response to the Arab Spring. And that article will be published in Melg's upcoming issue, uh, which was edited by Gillian Schwedler and Mark Lynch. Um, I wonder if you would mind by explaining what has driven your interest in Islamic politics in Jordan. Well, three reasons, really. Um, the first was academic, that even though many people have written about Islamism in Syria, for example, or particularly Egypt and other countries in the Middle East, Jordan is um, relatively understudied. You might argue that Jordan is perhaps a less important country and the reasons so that that's only obvious, but I think that Jordan is, is very interesting from an Islamist point of view because Islamists have long had the chance to develop there in a legal sphere so they have not been suppressed and, and um, cracked down upon as much as they have in Egypt and particularly Syria and Libya and other countries. So from an academic point of view, there really was something, uh, a lot still to be done there. Uh, a second reason is a, a personal reason. I just I just like Jordan. Uh, the people are nice and um, they're very hospitable. And unlike some more touristy countries, I would say they're not very... Uh, pushy, which is a rare combination of having this this great hospitality on the one hand, and not uh, trying to sell you things all the time. So that that's that's really quite um, quite nice, and uh, I've really grown to like Jordan over the years. So that's a personal reason, and there's also perhaps a, a pragmatic reason, which is that uh, you just mentioned uh, some of the books that I've uh, written. The first was on Abu Muhammad al Maktasi, and that book uh, concentrated, even though he is Jordanian, Palestinian Jordanian. Uh, that book concentrated mostly on Saudi Arabia, where his, his, his influence has been very strong. Uh, but he, because he is Jordanian, I, I knew a lot of people in Jordan. I had an extensive network in Jordan, and I felt, well, all of this will go to waste if I don't do anything else with Jordan. So I thought to myself, well, I'll probably go there again and, and do another, another project there in, in, in Jordan. And I did. So that, that's the sort of pragmatic reason I had. Great. And, and from the Islamist field in Jordan, the article focuses in on the Muslim Brotherhood, and it gives a very good overview of the development of the Brotherhood in Jordan, uh, its historically close relationship with the regime, and the more recent unraveling of that relationship. Could you maybe provide a little background of the movement in Jordan? Sure. Um, well, it was founded in 1945 um, and given official permission as a charitable association by uh, the first king of Jordan, King Abdullah I, in 1946, so in 1946, you could argue that it started officially, uh, which was also the year that Jordan became uh, independent. And it became an Islamic group, so a religious group, in 1953. 
And these two uh, numbers, these, these two years are not just important because that's when the organization was founded, but you, they also became very important uh, a few years ago when it was argued that the Muslim Brotherhood had not renewed its license since 1953 and has in fact been an illegal organization since 1953, which is quite surprising because it's it's participated in elections and it's you know founded a hospital and done all kinds of things while in fact being illegal. But that's, that's a matter that we uh, might discuss later on. Um, it's an organization that is engaged in all kinds of social activities and charitable activities and preaching, of course. It's participated, as I just mentioned, in uh, national and local elections uh, until 1967 in national elections and after 1989, again in national elections after King Hussein uh, of Jordan, the, the then king of the Hashemite kingdom, uh, declared that the west bank of the River Jordan, which was inhabited, of course, and still is by the Palestinians, was no longer considered Jordanian territory. Um the Muslim Brotherhood is is generally very pro-Palestinian. Um, when this was still a more relevant issue, it was very anti-British and anti-colonial. After a while, uh, particularly since the 1950s and 60s, it became strongly politicized because of the influx of a, of a younger, younger generation of, of, of leaders who were more overtly political, perhaps, who were not just strongly pro-Palestinian, but also believed that they should act as an organization on behalf of the Palestinians in Jordan. And um, particularly after 1989, when the first national elections were held again uh, after 1967, uh, they did really well in elections. They uh, got uh, 22 seats out of 80 in total at the time, plus 14 for independent Islamists. So that's almost half of the seats for Islamist candidates, both Muslim Brotherhood ones and independent ones. 1989 can be considered sort of the, the... the Jordanian spring of democracy, as it were. Um, and since then, subsequent elections have been, I think the the right word to use is rigged. Uh, I don't, I'm not suggesting that, that the ballot boxes were stuffed or anything, but um, there was a lot of gerrymandering going on where districts, uh, more rural districts, were given more seats. Rural districts would be mostly inhabited by East Jordanians, where the Muslim Brotherhood does not derive a lot of its support from, whereas the more urban districts in uh, Amman and other major cities in Jordan, where lots of Jordanians of Palestinian descent live, uh, were given fewer seats. Um, so that that was one way of, of redistricting and gerrymandering the whole situation to the disadvantages of the Muslim Brotherhood and other measures were also taken to ensure that the Muslim Brotherhood, despite its quite extensive popularity, would not gain the number of seats that it really deserved on the basis of that popularity. I don't know if you can still call that rigging. When I think of rigging an election, I really think of, of stuffing the ballot boxes and everything and, and, and really uh, coming up with 99% of the vote for uh, whoever is the leader. That was not the case, but it was definitely not fair. And uh, since then, since the 1990s, uh, also because the peace deal that the Jordanian regime did with the uh, Israeli government in 1994, the Wadi Araba agreement, the relationship between the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood and the regime has deteriorated, and I would say particularly so under the current king. Right. And there's been quite a bit of discussion about the divide of Jordan's Brotherhood between the Hawks and the Doves. Where did this divide um, emerge within the Brotherhood's history? Well, I would argue that 
in a sense, it started at the very beginning because the Muslim Brotherhood started out as a very broad movement uh, from the time of Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the movement in Egypt. It was always very inclusive with regard to religious views. For example, with regard to Shiites, uh, Hassan al-Banna is now actually blamed for being too pro-Shiite um, by some um, Sunni Islamists. And he um, was always in favor of, of, of taqrib, of uh, rapprochement with, uh, between Sunnis and Shiites. He had this famous statement of, you know, we're a, a Sunni group and a Salafi methodology and a, and a Sufi method or something like that. And from the very beginning, it was a very broad group that was open to a lot of people. And also it was a very theologically and doctrinally vague group. The Muslim Brotherhood, particularly in Egypt, much less so in Syria, for example, but in Egypt and also in uh, Jordan, it was an, a doctrinally very uh, vague and non-rigid group. Uh, anyone could basically join. And as a, as a result of that, it was not just vague about his political agenda, but it was, it was also theological details didn't really matter. And as a result, unless the Muslim Brotherhood was confronted with real decisions that it had to make, it was not really that this these divisions within its own ranks were not allowed to become manifest. So there was there was always a lot of dividedness that was not there unless you really looked very carefully. And I think the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan has the same kind of broad, big tent organization, as it were, with regard to religious issues and was vague with regard to political issues and was therefore likely to be equally divided on a number of issues beneath the surface, as it were. And this came to the fore in Jordan when real political decisions needed to be made after 1989 and particularly after 1993, when it became clear that the electoral participation that they had chosen and that they had engaged in since 1989 was not yielding the results that the organization had envisaged. For example, the peace deal with Israel, which I just mentioned, uh, the elections in 1993, which did not go as planned, not because they'd become less popular, but mostly, or perhaps even entirely because of the actions that the regime had taken. Julian uh, Schwedler, for example, has written excellent things about this. And um, questions arose as to what policy the Muslim Brotherhood should pursue. Now, there were some people who said we should continue uh, engaging with the regime, we should continue uh, participating in the elections because that's the way forward and at least we will have a vote in parliament, we will have a voice, we will be able to sit at the table, whereas other people said, no, this is, this is just wrong, we ought to be principled. And of course, there was some ideological opposition to engaging in the political process in the first place. So that voice, of course, was strengthened by these actions that the regime took. So this period of the, the early 1990s really brought these differences about engaging with the regime to the fore. But I would argue that they were there from the very beginning. Right. Um, and so you sort of touched on the divide over how to engage politically. Um, is it possible to say the sort of main fractures that sort of divide the Brotherhood into the two camps of the Hawks and the Doves? Right. Well, I think that the terms hawks and doves that you just mentioned are very often used, but they're very often not defined or ill-defined. And I myself have distinguished five different uh, factors of division within the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan. Uh, one is the identity of the organization. Is it primarily a dawah organization, so an organization geared towards preaching the message of Islam? Or is it a political organization that should strive for whatever political goals they have? 
This is also strengthened, of course, by the fact that in 1992, the Islamic Action Front was founded, which is the political party of the Muslim Brotherhood. It was originally meant to be a sort of independent Islamist political party, but it has really come to be seen, and I think rightly so, as sort of the, the, the political wing of the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan. So that's the first um, axis or, or factor on, on which the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan is divided, identity. The second is what I term character. Should the Muslim Brotherhood be focused primarily on Palestinian issues or on Jordanian issues? Now, that is not to say that uh, there are some elements within the Muslim Brotherhood who are not pro-Palestinian because they are all pro-Palestinian, but some of them say we are mostly here, many of them are of Palestinian descent themselves, we are mostly here to fight on behalf of the Palestinians. So we're here to resist the the peace deal with Israel, we're here to resist normalization with Israel, all that sort of stuff. Whereas on the other hand, there are also people who say, look, we are Jordanians, we're in the Jordanian parliaments, we live here, we work here, we might as well do a lot of work on behalf of Jordanians themselves. So political reform of the system, uh, talk about taxes, all the kind of things that the politicians in general talk about. Then the third is ideology, which I think is less relevant now, but used to be quite relevant, particularly until the early 1990s. Should the Muslim Brotherhood strive for an Islamic state or accept Jordan as it is? The people striving for an Islamic state really want to implement the Sharia, Islamic law. I think that Muslim Brothers in Jordan generally will say that they would like to implement the Sharia, but many will be sort of hesitant to specify that further. So to say, well, we want all of the rulings of Islamic law to be implemented in Jordan, or they would say the principles, for example, or we would like um, the Sharia to be the, the main source of, of, of laws in, in Jordan. So there is there are differences of opinion on how far one should take this. Uh, another group would say, no, we just ought to accept Jordan as it is and try to use the sort of reformist principles of Islam in general to make Jordan into a better society. Uh, a fourth um, factor of division that I distinguish within the organization is uh, participation. So whether the Muslim Brotherhood should boycott the regime or engage with it. Boycotting the regime sounds very principled, of course, and uh, perhaps it is. But there are some people who say, look, if we boycott the regime, we basically say to the regime, we don't want to have anything to do with you. And we've seen over the past few years, what happens to organizations who do that? We cannot deny that there was a coup in Egypt in 2013, for example. So quite a few brothers have become very hesitant in rejecting the regime because they know, you know, we better remain friends with the regime, otherwise they might kick us out. And there is a tendency across the region to outlaw the brotherhood, and we don't want to be the Jordanian victims of that. And the fifth dimension, which is the one that I deal with in the article that you just mentioned, is uh, openness. And that concerns the question of should the Muslim Brotherhood be exclusively Islamist and really focus on Islamist issues and cooperate with other Islamists and perhaps at most cooperate with others on a tactical basis or perhaps a strategic basis, but certainly not on an ideological basis? Or should the Muslim Brotherhood be inclusive and cooperate with others basically in all things? And that, as I said, is the dimension dealt within the article. Um and as its title mentions, the article focuses on the divided response within the Brotherhood um, to the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. um, how did that hawk dove divide, and particularly the divide over cooperation, play out during Jordan's Arab Spring? 
Um, I don't remember the divide between the hawks and doves being talked about that much in early 2011 um, or even into the March 24-25 protests. Uh, did the divide become more tangible as the cycle of contention sort of played out uh, and the regional momentum also slowed? Um, do we see it mostly after Hibbit to Shreen? Uh, sort of where does it you know, start to really become apparent? Uh, the Arab Spring, if we can still uh, call it that, was instrumental, uh, of course, because it, it had overthrown several regimes uh, in, the, uh, in the Arab world, in uh, Yemen, in Libya, in uh, Egypt, of course. And uh, it even brought Islamists to power in Tunisia and especially in Egypt. And I, I personally remember being in the Islamic Action Front's headquarters on the day that Mohamed Morsi was, was elected president or something like that, or a few days afterwards. And they were quite chuffed. They were really, uh, you know, they came to me and said, did you hear about Mohamed Morsi being elected? In, uh... So they were quite happy about that. And to some brothers, this was really a sign that, you know, if we just stick to it, we can actually win as an Islamist group. Egypt proves, I mean, Egypt obviously was, was long been seen as the most important Arab country, the most powerful Arab country, perhaps not anymore, but certainly until, uh, uh, I don't know, two decades ago. And if you can win as the Muslim Brotherhood, the oldest organization, the oldest branch of the organization, the mother organization, as it were, if you can win in Egypt, you can win anywhere. So that was seen as a sign that they could win as an Islamist group, and that encouraged them to stick to their Islamist guns, as it were. So on the one hand, it was stimulus. It was something that really um, spurred them on to, to keep going as they did. This changed because the Arab Spring basically uh, soured. It, it went awry. And in the early Arab Spring, uh, I, I agree with you that that was not noticeable at all. Basically, all brothers were united in the idea that they wanted reform of the regime, which was also their slogan. They did not call for the downfall of the regime. They called for the reform of the regime. And it was not until 2012, 2013, and particularly after the coup in Egypt in 2013, that differences on this issue started to appear, with some Muslim brothers in Jordan continuing to in insist, I mean, literally insisting, no, this doesn't change anything, we ought to continue with this relatively exclusive Islamist approach, while other members, perhaps the more careful ones, the more prudent ones, started emphasizing that, well, you know, we can't ignore what has just happened in in Egypt. We can't ignore that the Muslim Brotherhood won, well, we can't ignore that they were kicked out either. So they started emphasizing that cooperation might save them from the sort of inevitable blow from the regime that would come, uh, particularly given what happened in Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and uh, Egypt as well, that Islamists were under fire across the region. And given that Jordan has strong relations with all of these countries I just mentioned, it was, in their eyes at least, only a matter of time before the Muslim Brotherhood would bear the brunt of this sort of repression as well. And even though the king himself assured the people, reading the newspapers in which he expressed these, these uh, sentiments, that the Muslim Brotherhood was safe, he perhaps consciously or unconsciously uh, said things like, well, the Islamic Action Front is part and parcel of this country, without specifically mentioning the Muslim Brotherhood. There were, there were lots of comments in the newspaper saying, well, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s, we were against communism because communism was seen as an international organization rather than a Jordanian one. But how about the Muslim Brotherhood? The Muslim Brotherhood is an international organization too. They started using terms like the Muslim Brotherhood is used in Taqiyya. So they're sort of trying to 
show a different face uh, in, in public than the, the one you're showing in private, trying to lie, uh, which is a, a term that is actually derived from, from Shiite Islam, uh, which allows you to portray yourself as someone else and, and act as if you're not a Shiite, if, if it can save your life, if, it, if you're in, in grave danger. And they were sort of applying that label to the Muslim Brotherhood to suggest that the Muslim Brotherhood was lying, was not to be trusted, and was actually trying to undermine the regime. And there were all kinds of little incidences where the Muslim Brotherhood did not reject or denounce the Islamic State, for example, uh, fiercely enough. All of these were incidents and uh, examples that to the detractors of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, were seen as proof that the Muslim Brotherhood could not be trusted. And it was this entire mix in which a number of people within the organization started thinking, hang on, we better be careful because we don't want to push this too far or we'll lose everything. That process really started in 2012, 2013, so not at the very beginning of the Arab Spring. Right. And is this where we start to see breakoffs from the Muslim Brotherhood, um, organizations like Zamzam? Right. Right. Yeah. Zamzam started in 2012. It was named after the hotel in which uh, these people met. So it had nothing to do with uh, with the Zamzam well in uh, in Saudi Arabia. It's it's a hotel in uh, in Amman, and uh, this group started meeting uh, in two thousand and twelve. It was led by a group of Muslim brothers, particularly uh, Ruhay al Gharaiba, uh, but they also gathered with other non-Islamist political personalities. So there were it was basically a very diverse group of people. There were nationalists, and there were. Um, probably leftists and all kinds of, of people, uh, non-Islamists. But the the movers and shakers were really some of the more dovish um, Muslim brothers, uh, including Ruhay al-Gharaiba, as I just mentioned. And it was meant really as a broad-based initiative for reform. And with regard to its general emphasis on reform, I, I would say that there's hardly any difference between the Muslim Brotherhood and Zamzam. So ideologically speaking, I, I don't think there is a lot of difference with regard to its general emphasis on reform. I remember talking to Ruhay al-Gharaiba about this, and he said that the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood would probably not disagree with anything that was written in the Zamzam initiative. And I think he's right because they basically use the same uh, discourse and the same terminology. Although the former of the Muslim Brotherhood is obviously motivated by Islamism, whereas Zamzam was framed its motives much more in the language of Jordanian patriotism, which is different, of course. But the most important difference between them was precisely the dimension of openness that I referred to earlier. So to the Muslim Brotherhood leadership, the ideals that Zamzam's leaders and, and members, if, if adherents to, were talking about were fine. You know, this reform, this, this was something they wanted to but the Brotherhood believed, or at least the leadership of the Brotherhood believed, that such goals should not be pursued outside the the organization of the Muslim Brotherhood. So they said, you know, that that's all fine, but why are you joining a different organization to do this? Why can't you do this within the confines of the, of the Muslim Brotherhood? Whereas Zamzam's leadership felt that these goals should be striven for through broad-based coalitions that included as many different types of Jordanians as possible, precisely because they applied to broad groups of Jordanians. And as such, they said, it's precisely because so many people agree with these things that we ought to have a broad-based coalition rather than a strictly Islamist one. And that, I think, was the most important difference between the Muslim Brotherhood on the one hand and Zamzam on the other, and also the, the main bone of contention. 
Right. And has the regime attempted to sort of exploit these factions within the Muslim Brotherhood to, to undercut the, the more sort of hawkish elements? I think it has, but I think it's also at the same time important not to understate or to deny the Muslim Brotherhood's own agency in all of this. So there have been quite a few factions. Uh, Zamzam itself that we just talked about um, has founded a political party called the National Coalition for Reform, and they won a few seats in parliament in the last uh, elections, but it's, it's, it's a small group. There is now an alternative Muslim Brotherhood, a permitted Muslim Brotherhood is always referred to as the Jama'at al-Ikhwan al-Muslimin al-Murakhasa, so the permitted Muslim Brotherhood, which is the only legal Muslim Brotherhood in the country. And the original Muslim Brotherhood that was founded in 1945 is now illegal. And the new permitted Muslim Brotherhood consists of, of more dovish members. So the, the ones, Ruhayl uh, al-Ghraiba is with that group and, and others as well. Uh, Abdel Majid Dunaybad, for example, who was a, a previous uh, general controller of the uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood in the early two thousands, was uh, was a member of that. He was the, he was the leader of that, and there have been other split offs such as uh, Asharaka Wal Inqad uh, Partnership and Salvation, which was started uh, as a group of sort of uh, wise men who um, advised the Muslim Brotherhood during the tensions that had been caused by the founding of Zamzam. And they disagreed with Zamzam, perhaps. They were not on board with that group, but they also did not agree with what what they saw as the harsh treatment of the Zamzam members by the Muslim Brotherhood leadership. And it began to lead a life of its own. And hundreds of people eventually left the organization in late 2015. And they uh, more or less joined with Asharaka Walinqad with this partnership on Salvation Group, and they also founded a political party, which is probably going to participate in the election. So we, we have, um, I think, about four or five groups, not even counting the uh, the Islamic Centre Party that split off uh, in the early 2000s. So we have uh, about four or five organisations, and I think that the Jordanian regime exploited these tensions and exploited these divisions, but they did not create these divisions. So... The Muslim Brotherhood, because it was so divided, allowed for a situation to come into existence in which the regime could clearly use the law to say, hang on, the original Muslim Brotherhood has not re-registered since 1953, which was um, a ridiculous argument, I think, because it's always been there. And and this is typical of of the Jordanian method of bureaucratizing people into submission and the new Muslim Brotherhood exploited that as well and said, you know, not only are we the real Muslim Brotherhood, but the assets of the original Muslim Brotherhood also belong to us. So it was parts of the Muslim Brotherhood very much used the exploitation of the regime to gain new assets and to uh, strengthen their own position. So did the regime exploit these tensions? Absolutely. But the Muslim Brotherhood also allowed them to be exploited and, of course, created these divisions in the first place because there were some real ideological divisions that existed. No doubt about that. Great. Well, that's also given us a very good sort of overview of the uh, the current landscape of the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan. And I think that's probably also a good place for us to leave it today. So, U.S., thank you very much for joining us today. It's been very interesting. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Lawn Governance Podcast.